and welcome back to What Goes Around podcast. I am still Eamon Murtagh. And I am now Deb Grant. And we're getting used to that more and more each day. And this week, we talk about what is the best time to be playing a DJ gig? Do you want to do the warm-up? Do you want to do the graveyard shift at the end? Or do you want that peak time, four-to-the-floor madness slot? Because there's pressure that comes with that. Speaking of pressure, uh, this week, Eamon goes fishing. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Well, I needed a break, what can I say? And it's not just me. I'm not the only Eamon in town this week because we are blessed to have the wonderful journalist Eamon Ford come in and talk to us about his new book, which is all about the afterlife of musical estates. So if you ever wondered what happens to the money and the business once the artist has died, well, Eamon's got the answers and they are funny and fascinating. So that's going to be a great chat. And this week, sharing his phonographic memories, we have a man with a voice that you just want to take out of a jar and spread it on your toast and eat it for breakfast. Soul (laughs) legend Omar is with us this week. Shall we get into it? Let's open that jar. Let's let's open the jar. Smear it all (laughs) over my body. Fantastic. No, Deb. <laughs> <laughs> you have to leave that in. <laughs> oh, not again. Deb Grant, radio presenter, friend of mine. God, I need to know what goes around. So fucking boring saying Deb Grant, isn't it? I'm sick of it already. I want to go back to Frankenstein. <laughs> the oh, fabulously God. named Deb Grant. Mm. What goes around? Well, I have a gig coming up this weekend. I guess by the time this is broadcast... Um, maybe the gig will already have been and gone. But I'm privileged to play Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's Low Life Party at Corsica Studios. Yeah, the problem is that I haven't really played a proper DJ gig, like a high-pressure DJ gig in Mm. two years. So Mm. I've kind of been avoiding DJing. So I am pretty freaked out about it. I mean, I'm honoured to be playing, particularly as 20 years ago this year, my sister gifted me Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's book, book, How to DJ Properly for my 17th birthday, in which she wrote an inscription, uh, Dear DJ Loser. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> See, why did you mess around with Anne Frankenstein? You could have been DJ Loser all the time. <laughs> I've been trying to get away from that name my whole career. So, yes, yeah, so I'm DJing. And I, and I figured, you know, it's such a big venue and such a mm. kind of big deal gig, I assumed that I would be on for like an hour at like 8pm or something. Your um, preferred schedule. <laughs> well, yeah. I messaged Bill and I was like, oh, I'm just checking in what my timings are. I'm on from 2am until 5am. It's uh, peak time, mate. Peak time. Yeah, but this is the thing. Like, I I was expecting to just be a quiet little, you know, the, a kind of, I, I like being the warm-up person where people might dance, people might not dance. It doesn't really matter. The idea of taking over from Frank at Corsica Studios yeah. at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. for three hours, just like, I mean, what an honour, but also I am terrified. I can understand, I would, you know, because I know that I do a lot of uh, like this kind of thing where different time slots, they're just, it makes such a difference to mm. how you can play. And when you, when you start off earlier, it is less pressure and it, you, people don't mind if you take a few records to get to a point where people want to get down. If you're kicking in at two, you've got to have the box of bangers ready, haven't you? So I, I understand yeah. your, your nervousness on that front. Yeah, and it's like, 
you know, I used to play Jazz Cafe quite a bit. And the thing about playing Jazz Cafe, that's a high pressure gig in mm. probably a similar way. But you can just whip out Young Hearts Run Free. You can yeah. just whip out September, Earth, Wind and Fire. This is a much more discerning crowd. So it's going to mm. have to be weird stuff, which is great. That's the stuff I like, but it has to be the stuff that they like too. Will they appreciate three hours of solid disco rap? I don't know if I can take that <laughs> risk. Three hours might be pushing it. But <laughs> I think by two o'clock in the morning, everyone's going to be ready for a, I said a one for the trouble, two for the trouble, that kind of stuff. Oh, you know, all, the, all those rappers talking in, in numbers and, and, you know, sort of saying... Um, Willie Wood and the where, Willie Wood crew. Yeah, where they're from and how long they dance. And what the Zodiac sign is. All, all, all those checklist things. Yeah. I think you've got some advantages though because um, you don't drink, which is a great advantage mm. because I know if it was me, I'd have to be, have to be careful not to, not to get too refreshed. <laughs> that I think is the worst. I, I did have a gig in Brixton once where I was on at four in the morning. Oh God. Now, that is late, mate. That yeah. is really But was late. everyone not sort of thinning out by that stage? So it's sort of low pressure in a no, different they way. Didn't, they didn't arrive till two. What the <laughs> hell kind of party was this in Brixton? Well, it's in Brixton. What more do you need to know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, so, uh, you know, that particular evening, I, I struggled a little bit because I, I had not paced myself. Mm. Someone made a good point. We were talking about this uh, with the Level Save the Day crew. And someone made the point. The worst thing about being on later in a bill is that you might be on later, later. You might just get pushed. Things might, you know back mm. up a little bit mm. and then suddenly you're two o'clock in the morning is actually three o'clock in the morning mm. and that makes a massive difference to how awake you are and how able you are to do your job yeah but then it shaves two out this shaves an hour off your time slot i love how all, all of your like wishes are to get less less time <laughs> i'm always saying i'll do it all night no, no don't worry about other djs i'll play for eight hours straight that's fine you're like oh i better have a sofa and cup of tea and i'll be there for half God, an hour i know i'm high maintenance but it's just because i'm scared no, you know no. but what don't what's your scared. preference then would you rather at a big gig would you rather have an early ish slot or like on first, but say the party doesn't start till 10, 11. Or would you rather take over from someone else at two o'clock in the morning? 100% a glory hound. I, w I want to be peak really? time. Because I think the thing about that is, is you can, um, you can get quite a lot of satisfaction sort of building the vibe. And I do enjoy that kind of thing. But there is nothing like knowing you can just hit the ground running and just say, right, okay, I'm going to start all guns blazing and maybe trail off a little bit. You know, mm. that's the other nice thing is you, you People will drift away no matter what you do because, you know, it is that people will get tired at like half two, three o'clock in the morning. Mm. People are going to start drifting away. But you don't really need to worry about that. As long as you start absolutely guns blazing, it'll be it'll be fantastic, I'm sure. But what, what do you... So, like, would you carry on sort of take some inspiration from the person who's on before you or would you just, like, fucking, you know... Yeah, I think it's a dangerous game. scratching. You, so one of the things we I used to have a, a mate called Pete Maton, bless him. He's a lovely fella. And we used to play techno and every now and again you'd be waiting to go on after after Pete and you think, Oh yeah, I know, I know what I can play after this sort of vibe, this is gonna be great. And mm. you'd pull your records out and you'd be standing there. And then he would do what we termed he would Pete Maton you, where he would put something on so dizzying and weird. <laughs> Or, or so left field from where he had been playing that you, all of the thoughts that you'd gathered over the previous <laughs> hour of his set have to be jettisoned and you've got two minutes to think where you're going to go next. So I would say do not worry about others too much. They booked you. I would say go do your thing. Well, I'm asking what you'd do. 
Well, I would, I would definitely, yeah, I, I would, I would take the late slot. I would run at it shouting, and I would. But not- in terms of your first track, like, would you just start from a completely different place, or try always, and follow on from the prior person? I always like to know what I'm, how I'm starting, because it kind of affects where I finish. Mm. Um, it is tricky because you know you, it's happened to me before. I mean, I, well, I was once I had this big reggae gig and I was going to start with Funky Kingston. I was going to put the MC5. Are you part of the problem? Are you mm, part of the solution? Of that the solution. little speech. Yeah. So I put that over the top of Funky Kingston. It sounds fucking amazing. Mm. And I was just about to go on, and the guy played Funky Kingston. No. Like, you know what I mean? And then I was like, oh, what am I going to uh. do? So I would say have have two in mind, but I would I would definitely you know play your own game because actually. Even if you play the same track again, do you know what I mean? It, it probably went down great before. Definitely. It'll probably go down great again. And I think that night, do you know what I did? Mm. I played it again. Nice. Because I figured if you can't wheel up and come again at a reggae gig, when can you? <laughs> That's a good point. Amon Murta, what goes around? Well, <laughs> that sounded like you lost interest in asking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I mean, just as an aside, I've been making some new reels of um, of my radio stuff to send to people lately, and sometimes I just sound so bored on the radio. Bored. It's not intentional. Um, I thought that was your shtick. I thought you were just like, oh, darling, <laughs> too cool. Darling, so lucky to no, have I love my job. It's just my mm. voice. <laughs> anyway, go on. I'm not. I'm not bored at all. I'm fully stimulated by no, your company. You Please tell me why. As goes if around. you could ever switch off when I'm <laughs> on the airwaves. Um, well, I'm, I'm fine and dandy, and I'm getting used to life here in another mm. another house. Um, and uh, a very vaguely, and it is very vaguely uh, related uh, to DJing, uh, thing happened to me. When you DJ, you do sometimes get paid in cash, no? Yeah? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so because of this, I have a small silver cash box what I does keep mm-hmm. and if I've got because taking the money to the bank is an arse you used to have to stuff it in an envelope and just shove it in a hole and then it'd appear in your bank account but now you have to use the machine or, or whatever and there's always a queue and the machine's always broken and it just oh it's really soul destroying mm-hmm. so quite often I used to have just not not loads because I'm not a rich man by any stretch of the imagination but I used to have a little bit of cash in my cash box and I would lock up my cash box and then stick it up on the shelf and it would be safe there until I needed to go out and go and spend something. Well, obviously, I brought that down here to Bristol in my new house and um, I was looking for a place to put it. And I, th- I looked up and we've got a lovely new kitchen thing and uh, the fridge and the freezer are both contained in this rather nicely built grey wooden cabinet thing. And it's all sealed in beautifully with like um, bathroom sealant and all that sort of stuff. And it looks really great. It's very nice. And there's a little space on top. I, thought, I know what's coming. St- I know what's coming. <laughs> you know what's going, man. Oh. I stuck it up there and I thought, it's sticking out a little bit. I'll just push it back a little bit. And I pushed it back. And of course, unaware, there was a void behind the fucking fridge freezer. Mm-hmm. So you've got to bear in mind, this is like, Last thing on a Friday night, it's about about two in the morning, half one, two in the morning. I push it back just an inch and there's this almighty crash as the cash box goes hurtling down the back of the thing. I mean, literally, it woke up my wife. She's like, what's going on? Is there a burglar down there? And I, was like, I was laughing at the time. I was thinking, that's really funny because I've just, I've just thrown my cash down the back of this thing. It's like, oh, it's just me. I've, I've put the cash box. It's gone down the back of the 
the fridge. I'll get it out tomorrow. The next day, I get it out and I'm looking down and it is a long way down to the cash box. It is like eight foot, right? So there's no reaching down. I tried to get a broom on the on it, see if I could scoop it up with a broom, but the, the clearance between the top of the wooden cabinet and the ceiling just wasn't enough to turn the broom. So I couldn't actually physically get the broom down there. So then I, because <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sat there in the room, right? 10 foot away from all my money and I can't touch it. So I'm getting desperate now when I put a little little hook on a string. I tried fishing for the thing, trying to catch the handle, but the handle's kind of wedged. I can't do it. So I'm having a bit of a freak out and I uh, I post on Twitter like, oh my God, I, I'm such an idiot. Look what I've done to take the picture of the cash box right down the bottom of the thing. And uh, get loads of silly, silly replies about fishing and all that sort of thing. And then someone says, get a magnet on a string. Yes. Well, I just thought, no, fuck off. Who does that? And then uh, the next night, as I sat there needing to go to the shop and realising I had no money again because all my money was in the cash box I thought fuck it so I got on Amazon I didn't realise magnet fishing is a thing yes. it's an actual thing people go magnet fishing all the time so you get these really powerful magnets and they come on little bits of like a little hooky thing and a rope and the idea is you swing it into rivers and stuff and then when it hits the silt at the bottom of the river, it picks up anything that's metal. So you can pick up like old coins and um, bits of jewellery or whatever. I don't know, tin cans, I guess. But there was a brilliant um, illustration. And the, the first one was, there's, there's four pictures. And the first one was a picture of the, the magnet. And the second was a picture of the rope. And then there's a picture of um, the rope being hauled out of a, a river with loads of Roman coins all attached. I thought, well, this is looking good. Oh. And then the, the next picture was the same magnet and hauling out of a canal was a submachine gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I want one of these now. <laughs> I don't care about the money anymore. I want to go find me a submachine gun. So anyway, um, long story short, I ordered the thing out of desperation because I thought, how many times in my life am I actually going to use a magnet on a rope to this get anything? This could be a new thing for you. Well, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Very excitedly, I climbed on the kitchen counter and peered over the side. And I had to be really careful because there's a metal bit at the back of the fridge, which is like a cooling thing mm. for the freezer. And I thought, shit, if the magnet hits that, it'll stick and then I'll pull it and then it'll... And then there'll be gas escaping and so the fridge will there's danger. There's an added element of danger. Oh, mate. So I ended up sort of like holding a stick in one hand just to make sure that if it moved, it didn't hit the thing and then lowering it down. And oh, can, just I, can I ask where Lucy was at this moment? Was she cheering you on? Laughing she... her okay. arse off in another room. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Absolutely crying with laughter. But there I was and I, met, I, I dropped it down and it was one of the highlights of my entire life. It, so, it just went. Yes. And I just thought. Yeah, because I wasn't even sure if it was going to stick to the cash box. Mm. You know what I mean? I was like, is that really metal or isn't it? Anyway, it worked like a charm. Amazing. Dragged it out. Got me got me cash back. Out. Beautiful. Like, And now, got a magnet on a rope. Guess where I'm going tonight? <laughs> going oozy fishing around the canal. Yes. Do you know, I, I never would have thought of that as a solution either. But I've dropped things down the back of things. And also... Um, I had to help my neighbour's drunk house guests one time who mm. had left their keys inside a kitchen and we had to try and figure out how to get the keys from inside the open kitchen window. Anyway, I do what I do in any situation where I can't be bothered to think of a solution to something. And I found <laughs> Tim, who's basically like MacGyver, and he's the one who taught me about magnets, ma magnet fitting. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's the kind of knowledge they should fucking teach you that in school. That's a life yeah, skill. Yeah, yeah. 
that's like a, a, an addendum to my DJing classes. Yeah. Yeah, I've, t- I've taught you to beat mix. And there's scratching. <laughs> and now what to happen if your cash box goes down the back of a very tall fridge? That must have been Anyway, I'm off to the canal because um, <laughs> I think I think this is basically my new hobby. And I'm going to I'm going to be uh, fishing for, for metal at every opportunity. Let us know what you can back with. I will. I will. Probably be probably be some amazing treasure. I don't know what. <laughs> Hopefully not an Uzi. It's all very well making music and creating art, but at the end of the day, there are bills to pay, contracts to honour, and dearly departed souls to be sold. Eamon Ford is a journalist and writer who specialises in the business part of the music business. In his latest book, Leaving the Building, The Lucrative Afterlife of Music Estates, Eamon takes a forensic look at the afterlife of the art and how even after death, there is money to be made and a catalogue to exploit. Please welcome to the show, my dear near namesake, Eamon Ford. Hello. Yes, justice for Eamon with two ands. That's all. That, 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 that's what I say. I'm not going to say Eamon with one and is not a real Eamon. We're all Eamons. <laughs> we're, we're all Eamons in some way and form. It's good it's, to it's start on a diplomatic yes. note. Um, and you can be an honorary Eamon, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not, well, thanks. I'm happy enough. <laughs> oh, 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 all right. All right. Can we talk first about where it started? Because Elvis Presley really was the first kind of artist where people figured out that you could still trade on an artist's name and reputation even after they, they passed away. And obviously that's where the book takes its title from, Elvis has left yeah. the building. Yeah, well, he wasn't the first artist to have an estate built around them and to have posthumous releases. You can look, or even posthumous success, you can look at the way uh, Robert Johnson's um, catalogue, very limited, very mm-hmm. slim catalogue, was revived in the 60s and kind of set this template for the blues explosion. And then you obviously had people like Buddy Holly having posthumous hits after he died worth noting that Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay was the first posthumous number one in US chart history because mm. he'd almost completed the recordings then went off to play a gig and the plane crashed and he and most of his band died and they had to go into the studio very quickly and complete the recording. The reason why the whistle is there was uh, they, they kept it in as a nice little touch because it was only there as the little kind of musical guide it wasn't supposed to be in the final mm. thing but that was number one mm. in the states within about a month i think of him dying so they completed it really really quickly but the elvis state is a completely different beast because it it took on uh, what i call in the book the industrialization of estate management where it just became this enormous machine so obviously elvis himself was massive but financially he was not in a good state. Tom Parker had done really bad deals. The business of being Elvis was just incredibly expensive and the whole enterprise was kind of circling the plug hole of insolvency when he died. So they had to move really, really quickly to start to do things. So you had this whole idea of a shrine and a 
and a tourist centre in one in Graceland. And they opened up part of it. Uh, interestingly, they didn't open up the uh, top floor for a good few years because Elvis's aunt was living there uh, with the dog. <laughs> they just turned Graceland into this enormous machine. So it's the second most visited house in America after the White House and remains. So even during COVID, they were selling virtual tours of Graceland. <laughs> Forbes posthumous rich list which they've been running every year since 2001 and this is all celebrities uh, mostly musicians but you've got people like uh, Marilyn Monroe, Arnold Palmer the golfer Charles Schultz who did Peanuts uh, people like that who generate who just it generates a huge amount of money. They're mostly dominated by musicians, of course. But Elvis has never been outside of the top five mm. in the twenty years that Forbes has been running this posthumous rich list. So they've been incredibly active in making the Elvis estate turn over a huge amount of money. Yeah. An estate really only has two jobs: it's make money and keep the artist relevant. So finding mm. ways to introduce this artist to new younger audiences who will grow up with an interest in or a fandom um, around Elvis Presley, even though he's been dead for, what is it now, 45 years? That's insane. I mean, I was in Graceland a few years ago. They're absolutely shameless. The term exit through the gift shop, like basically you you buy your ticket and you have a time slot, but they intentionally give you a time slot, which is several hours after you arrive, so that you're trapped there with nothing to do except for go to all these different gift shops. And they'll sort of tempt you in with the, and I say this as if I objected to it. I love (laughs) Elvis Tat. And uh, I had a great time buying up TCB door hangers and whatever else was on offer. They, They have set the barn now and uh, with the Prince estate they they had one look at that and thought I can't wait for the guy to die let's get on it and unlike Elvis perhaps the Prince estate is very interesting because of course they've got more than just memories and and trinkets and things they've got music and lots of it yeah, the, well, the the infamous or the legendary vault, which they say is like anything up to there, there's there's different reports about how much is in there, but they're 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 talking hundreds of albums worth of unreleased material. There were, I believe, six heirs that they finally settled down, kind of half siblings and things like mm-hmm. that. But uh, some of them have died or sold up part of their shares to a company called Primary Wave, which was originally a music publisher, but has now expanded into lots of different areas. They own the entire Glen Gould estate. Uh, Primary Wave also own 50% of the Whitney Houston estate. So they've quietly been buying up these part shares, but the bank's still effectively in charge because there's some disunity between the heirs about the direction it should be going. Stevie Wonder is uh, allegedly has a, has a big vault as well. Right. But he's always said, you know, he doesn't want any of it to come out. And uh, it, when he dies, he'd quite like it all to be burned to the ground. Yeah. The Prince was always like, when I'm gone, do what you like with it. Do you know what I mean? So... <laughs> It's well, I think, I think there's there's kind of conflicting things. Different family members have said, oh, he, he can do this. He said we can do this. Uh, uh, collaborators are saying slightly contradictory things as well. So it's not quite clear mm. what they... Uh, what he would or wouldn't have approved to come out. But one family member went on the record and said that they want everything to be released. But yeah. whether or not, whether or not they <laughs> I bet can. they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this is an interesting, interesting sort of seam as well, because, of course, the people who inherit the rights to these things, they yeah. don't always necessarily get on. Oh, yeah. God, like uh, there, there's lots and lots of estates where it's kind of really fraught and bitter between and it's generally 
the estates of male artists who have married multiple times. I think the most interesting case I came across was uh, uh, Johnny Halliday's estate because he had children from previous relationships, he uh, two adult children, and then he had married um, his last wife. They had adopted two children and his estate uh, um, dictated that everything should go to the two adopted children. And he said, um, he put in his will that his two adult children had got enough out of him in their lifetime and he paid for everything. <laughs> oh, they could. Yeah, yeah. And he basically just said, you've had enough out of me. But the peculiarities of French law are that uh, you cannot disinherit any of your children. If they oh. are proven to be your children, you cannot disinherit them. But the the, and the case got really, really ugly, so they were fighting with his widow over control of this, and uh, the argument from her side was that uh, Halliday was uh, domiciled in America, so therefore French law doesn't apply, which normally it would have. But in the last couple of years of his life, he was in France a lot, and the kids used as evidence in the court case to prove that he was uh, primarily based in France in the last couple of years of his life due to illness and getting medical treatment and so forth. They used data from his Instagram account showing that he was in France for most of the year. And it can get really, really ugly. Or sometimes estates don't carve stuff up equally between the children. With the Frank Zappa estate, two of his kids got 30% of the estate and uh, two of them got 20% of the estate. Uh, mm. And that's caused loads and loads of problems between them. There's kind of lots of bitter mm. infighting and so forth. And I think that's finally been resolved. The James Brown estate was just an absolute mess because <laughs> his, his last <laughs> wife turns out was not legally married to him because she had been married to a bigamist which disqualified her from uh, being legally married to James Brown and that went through and he mm -hmm. James Brown had disinherited some of his children because while he was still alive they had sued him and said that they helped him write like some of his biggest songs when they were like four years old and stuff and I was like <laughs> oh, it was all really oh, it was all really really ugly what's the future for this because now that this is an established you know very very lucrative thing there must be so yeah. many record labels and you know these companies that take over estates must be rubbing their hands together kind of mm. the most lucrative estates are the ones that have that are multifunctional you can trademark things so you've got estates like the miles davis estate has trademarked bitches brew and uh kind of blue you can you can trademark these kind of unique phrases and unlike a sound recording or publishing rights which eventually fall into the public domain as long as you maintain and keep working trademarks they will last forever. Like you say, they can take something that they've made, like the, just the phrase "bitches brew," yeah. and then suddenly you've got you've got a coffee company. And I <laughs> I am particularly amused by the handling of the Bob Marley estate, which really has yes. gone gung ho on this. I mean, not only have they they filed trademarks for the Marley Spliff and all that sort of stuff, but they've yeah. branched out into all sorts of areas. And my favourite one is is they, there's a there's a sort of a Red Bull rip off, like it's an energy drink uh, based yeah. on the Bob Marley brand. I can't think of any 
anything less full of energy, really. <laughs> not money to me is lying back on a beach, chilling out, do you know what I mean? But if yeah. you want to plough yourself with uh, with caffeine, then you can do it in a Bob Marley way. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the cannabis side of things, because for mm. years and years, the Marley estate was trying to move him away from the, the that classic poster on student walls yeah. and kind of smoking a spliff in profile and they wanted to kind of move away from that and kind of sell him as the kind of the third world superstar ambassador of peace and love and all of that sort of stuff and then obviously certain states in america legalized cannabis and they were going well we're not oh. gonna we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna let this one pass yeah and they they also they have they do handphones. They do absolutely everything. I think they um, they did a big deal with Wrangler, which um, was kind of his preferred denim while he was still alive. So there's loads <laughs> of pictures of him wearing kind of Wrangler jeans and so forth. Mm. But the estate obviously will not endorse anything to do with alcohol. So that's why they went into energy drinks rather than ah. alcohol, because obviously he was a Rastafarian mm. and that goes against the religion to consume alcohol. You have to market the artist as if they were still alive. 20, 30 years ago, if we were having this conversation, it would be you would do something around a big anniversary of their birth or their death or the release of a classic album, and that was kind of it. And now uh, you have to behave as if they're like an Ed Sheeran or a Taylor mm. Swift or whatever. And you have to be running Instagram accounts. Uh, you've got to have a TikTok profile, all of these things, because you have to be constantly active and you have to be constantly searching out where kind of younger consumers are. Well, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. Really enjoyed talking about that. And uh, it, it, I, I, I'm keen to see what happens uh, to a few of these artists who, you know, who are hawking around holograms and stuff and where the gravy train stops and, you know, the ones that don't manage to keep things relevant, as you say, and the ones that do. So it's a very interesting subject. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Amy. You are welcome. Oh, hopefully I made Daph seem not so depressing. He <laughs> cheered us up no end, don't you worry. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Today's guest is a legend of UK music, loved and lauded by everyone from Stevie Wonder to D'Angelo to Erica Badu, who has said his voice is one of the best she's ever heard. His debut single, There's Nothing Like This, hit the UK Top 20 in 1991, and he's been riding high ever since, signing to RCA and linking up with the likes of Leon Ware, Angie Stone and ODB, among others, picking up awards and nominations along the way and being appointed MBE for Services to Music in 2012. He recently released an anthology on freestyle records reflecting his long and influential career so far. He still has a voice that you just want to spread on your toast and eat for breakfast. And we're so pleased he's here to share his phonographic memories with us. Welcome to the podcast, Omar. Hi, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, you can add a fellowship from the Guildhall. I just got a fellowship uh, two weeks ago. Did you? Congratulations. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, because you you, you 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 were educated there, right? Yeah, that was my college, my alma mater. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I came out there with a diploma. So coming getting a, uh, a fellowship was uh, yeah quite a nice touch. I'm very very happy with that. 
What does that yeah. entail? Is just when one of their alumnus goes off and, and does great things, they sort of honour them? Yeah, that kind of thing. And I got, I'll get, I got to wear a cap and a gown and hey. uh, basically sit with other, other people that actually worked properly for, the, for, their, <laughs> for their, 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 their degree. You know what I mean? I came in, it only took me 30 odd years. You did your degree in the School of Hard Knocks and Tough Surprises. So. There we go. Exactly. There we go. That's you did exactly. the work. My sister just got a PhD and I'm always threatening her to one day try and get an honorary one. <laughs> <laughs> she'd be absolutely furious it's the best way to do it exactly. yeah, yeah, stick it exactly. in yeah. exactly. I'm afraid I've got no hope of either but there we go <laughs> do, do you find I feel like I don't know if it's like in light of the anthology that that, um, that came out at the beginning of last year or what it is but I feel like you are getting more props and respect in the industry than ever are you feeling that I feel like people defer to you and sort of are, are you know giving well, you your dues I, more than ever I, I was thinking, uh, am I dying? You know, it's that kind of thing when people give it a, a lifetime achievement award and things like that. It's normally at the end of the, the thing. I, I, I don't know. I think I've managed to, um, you know, stay current in all the generations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, when it first started, people used to say, oh, my sister likes your music. And then it started to become my mum likes your music. And now it's my, <laughs> it's my grand likes your music. So, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, I seem to keep it going somehow. It's all my peers who just keep returning to your music. And like younger yeah. people too. I just feel like you're ever present. I was going to say my kids are at school now and they're cut, you know, they're, you know dad's not cool. But then the friends, the friends have seen that I've got a blue tick on Instagram. So now, yeah. now I am kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. I'm in with in with a cool kid. I kill for one of those. <laughs> I can remember a couple of months ago when the uh, when the lockdown was sort of semi lifted, shall we say? Um, I was uh, I was playing a, a big brewery to lots of lots of youngsters, and um, we weren't allowed to let them dance, so they weren't allowed to get up and move around yet. Everyone had to stay in the tables. And as the night wore on, it became progressively more difficult to keep them sat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I reached the stage where like, we were thinking, oh, we're going to get busted in a minute. We're all going to get thrown out and you know, the, the music's going to stop. And I thought, well, I'll find whatever I've got in my bag. I'll find the slowest thing and I'll put that on. And it happened to be, there's nothing like this by Omar. And I stuck mm. it on thinking, well, this will calm the atmosphere down. Omar, it did not calm the atmosphere down. <laughs> they got on the tables, they started singing along, they were deep in the groove, okay. it was something else. I've never seen such a big crowd move so much to such a slow, swaying song. It was beautiful. I like to have that effect on people, yeah. <laughs> you definitely do, definitely do. Um, so let's dig into your phonographic memories then, because you've, uh, you've picked a, um, a great selection of, uh, of soul records, really. Um, the, well, first, the first one you picked is the Ohio Players' Heaven Must Be Like This. Talk to us about your relationship with this record. Well, it's funny, you start off talking about There's Nothing Like This, but that that is the song that um, influenced There's Nothing Like This. Uh, it's at the time when it came, when I was listening to it, I mean, it came out in the 70s, but when I was listening to it, it was uh, the late 80s. And that's when hip hop had just kind of like started. It was quite young. Uh, sampling was quite a new thing. Sequencing was quite a new thing. And I was like, yeah, well, that's kind of okay. But I grew up playing with you know musicians and instruments and stuff so i wanted to hear more of that so i decided to go to my dad's record collection and when you put this song on i mean just from the first note i, I was like why the hell is no one playing this music mm -hmm. and why is nobody making this music here uh, in fact 
Um, and then if you listen to the bass line on that, then you'll hear exactly where there's nothing like this bass line came from. <laughs> Never hidden it at all because, you know, you gotta you got to give um, props to, to um, where you come from, you know what I mean? Mm. And that, that band is like an amazing band as well. But that's the song that really kicks everything on everything off. Yeah. And was your, was your dad's record collection uh, a big influence for you growing up? Generally. Well, yeah, you know, on the Sundays when there's nothing on the telly and stuff, and you get a bit, you get a bit bored, and you just <laughs> want to like rifle through things. Uh, yeah, there's quite a good source of uh, of, of inspiration mm-hmm. in in there. You know what I mean? It's quite varied. Yeah, and did you discover your voice kind of singing along to those records? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I started making uh, writing songs when I was about fourteen, and I actually released my first single on my dad's label. Uh, when I was 16, and listening back to it, I, I mean, uh, the first single I ever released, I hated it with a passion. Like, <laughs> after two weeks of singing, it was like, I, 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 can't, I cannot sing this anymore. Um, and that's kind of what made me um, get into the, the mindset of that I want to make music that lasts forever. I mean, we're still listening to Marvin, we're still listening mm-hmm. to Stevie, we're still listening to all these great artists to, um, you know, today. I kind of wanted, I, I said to myself, that's the kind of music that I, I want to make that, you know, it doesn't matter when you listen to it or how long ago, long ago it was made. You still want to hear it. You still want to go back to it. You know what I think heaven is? I think heaven is you. You know that? Listen. A place where I can find So the Ohio Players, I think, are a really interesting band because they're one of those ones who were, you know, they had a couple of really big hits that people kind of remember. But they did a lot of music and they, they were phenomenally successful at one stage. And, and they really um, seem to have got lost a little bit in over the time, you know. But like listening to this track today, I was, you know, there was so much to recommend it. You know, the, the instrumentation is fantastic. And the the wonderful way, I do love a track that has you know, a straight up talky bit at the front. <laughs> so he's just yeah, going, hi, sure. how are you? Come, come into my yeah, song, I'm going to talk to you now. Right. You know? yeah, and it's, yeah, it's got right. all of that smoothness and, and kind mm. of, like I say, the definite musicianship. I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from with that. It, mm. They seem to have um, been slightly underrated, I think, in this country especially. I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I mean, you know, they, they were famous in my house. You know, I, mm. you know those those album covers as well were quite, yeah, you know, yeah. for, a, for, for a young lad growing up. You, those album covers were <laughs> like the next best thing, uh, kind of, if you, if you get my meaning. Um, yeah. But, you know, bands like them, The Meters as well, that is like, like you said, those, they've got those one or two tunes that everybody knows. Uh, Foxy was another one that I remember. You know that yeah. that rare groove sound is uh, uh, quite a big thing for me because 
uh, what they do is they use the, the funk and the soul as well, but then they use like the string arrangements. They use or orchestration mm. and stuff, which I'm also familiar with because that's what I, how I was trained. I was classically trained. I played per percussion. I was well, principal percussion, so the Kent Youth Orchestra as well as, and as well as studying the, the Guildhall. I studied at the Team School of Music. And, you know, that's, I was just used to having musicians around me. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? So that's the, the whole kind of thing that I tried to put into my music as well. Can you tell us a bit more about your dad's record label? Uh, yeah, he started it in the 70s. It was called uh, Congo Dance. And uh, my dad used to play drums for people like Doris Troy, oh, Horace wow. Sandy, Marcia Griffiths. Mm. Um, you know, he tells stories of hanging with Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Julian Marley's like my brother's best best mate because they grew up together because of that connection. Um, but yeah, he had a reggae band called Jalion uh, that he wanted to release music on. And obviously, you know, major labels weren't really like looking for like small time, well, like local acts because he was in Halsen at the time. Um, so yeah, he decided to start his own label. He put out a couple of albums on on the on the label as well. And my little brother's. I had a band called Burning Bush, which was very similar to um, musical youth. Mm -hmm. That kind of, mm -hmm. you know, where all the kids sing and they play and everything like that. But it was all reggae based. And uh, it wasn't until I was about 15, 16, he, he kind of wanted to put that soul music on, on, on the menu as well. And that's when I started to, you know, kind of pop up. Because I, I, we didn't live together at the time. I was living in Canterbury, he's in London. And I used to come up and, uh, and use his studio to like, um, put down ideas that I had um, and I just kept doing it I kept working at it um, until uh, when I was 16 it was time for me to release, release my first single which was called Mr Postman do not look for it <laughs> do not listen to it I will personally hunt you down and maim you All right. <laughs> um, it. once it's out so, there it's out there forever <laughs> yeah it is it is <laughs> but um, yeah that's, that's uh, the basic history your dad must have been pretty thrilled to discover that you had a voice like that and that you wanted to make soul music, if that's something he was looking for for his label. Yeah, you, you know, the funny thing is, I said, I always said to him, how did he pick me? Because I listened back to my voice, like, and it sounds nothing at all like what I sound like now. Really? You know, it's, yeah, it's total work in progress. I mean, I, I, I started singing simply because I was writing songs and I didn't have anybody else around me to sing them for me. So I just, you know... I'm a person that does everything, so I just thought well, I'll have I'll have a go at it. Um, but you know, as the years progressed and I practiced more, and you know, I grew into my voice, it, it made something of it. And he just said he always knew, he always had that thing. He's he's a bit he's been a very big influence um, uh, for me in terms of my my writing, in terms of my production, and he's got a way of putting something across without actually, actually using words. You know what I mean? It's that typical Jamaican. Father, he just said, "No, you know what? You want to put something in the, you know, with the, mm -mm, and the, uh, uh, that kind of thing." <laughs> and and even though he's saying that, I still understand what he means. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's how we work. That's awesome. Let's move on to your second choice then, which is Stevie Wonder, um, mm. and a, a bit of a, an unusual track from Stevie. Talk to us about this one, Venus Flytrap and the Bug. So this is from uh, Stevie's album, uh, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which album. was actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, yeah, me too. I mean, that was my first proper discovery of Stevie. In wow. fact, even before Songs in the Key of Life, 
Um, I, you know, I never knew it was a film. I didn't know, even know it was a soundtrack to a, a nature film. I still haven't seen the film, in fact. Right. But yeah. um, it, it really encapsulates uh, uh, a lot about Stevie, which I love, which is in terms of the production, the arrangements, the sounds. I mean, it's a lot of, you just get a sense of the, the, the Venus flytrap and you get a sense of the, of the bug. In, in the jazz music that he's that he's done, but he just and he brings the instrumentation alive. It's not just a you know just a analog sound. It, it's really talking to. You. So I've always tried to to put that in my music as well. game changer for him i think because he sure. had been this or had become this uh, sort of um pinnacle of melodic musicianship you know coming from the motown sound and creating this his own take on that but he was always yeah. always looking for, to the modern world you know he was getting the moogs in sure. really early on and secret life of plants i think was one of the first digital recordings of an album and the the whole way that 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 very strange track is constructed, you know, with the sort of almost yeah. sample like chat at the beginning, and it's it's a really well, I, interesting period for him. I think I remember uh, pictures of him with two white guys wearing white coats, like white white lab coats. <laughs> they really they really were scientists, and if you saw the, wow. the size of the of the synthesizers, um, just to make one sound is incredible. Basically, so yeah, he he was definitely a, a scientist in a, in a way. I'm so glad that you picked something from that album because I feel like it's sort of been brushed over a little bit yeah. uh, in terms of what we listen to of of Stevie Wonder's output now. And mm. I'm curious as well, like that that was your first experience of St of Stevie Wonder. Like it's that's not often the sort of gateway for a lot of people. How was it that you discovered mm. that one? Was that through your dad's record collection? I I no I, well, I think that might be my mum's uh, mm. collection. It was definitely one of those things. I mean, I remember getting up every every Sunday morning getting up really early before my mum was up um to go down and listen to the record collection and it was like staples. It was um 40 greatest hits of Elvis. And there was one which was rock and rock and roll uh, songs, just like uh, this whole bunch of rock and roll songs. There was out, there was Grease, the soundtrack from Grease was another one. Um, and I just I used to incessantly listen to these these uh, these uh, albums. It was just something about the music that just captured my my imagination. And it's just coloured my life ever since, you know. Mm. It's the kind of same thing I like mm. to do. When you, mm. you talk about having these uh, tremendous libraries to sort of 
um, get involved in and, and to spark an interest and in all that sort of thing. What was the first thing that you really felt was yours that you discovered yourself and you, you really clung on to? I clung on to well, uh, in my record collection. Uh, I don't know if you call it myself. Well, when I was in the orchestra, I used to listen to what other people used to listen to. Uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra was mm. one oh. um, that people n never got into. Uh, 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 the Stranglers was the other thing because oh, wow. you know I did the version of of Golden Brown. Golden Brown is such a beautiful yeah. song. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just like n n no other. There's nothing to compare it to. You know what I mean? Uh, that's why I had to do a version of it. And uh, yeah, that kind of thing. I remember uh, buying Police. Regatta de Blanc, that album mm. as well. And Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, but you know, that's everybody's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically. But <laughs> that's those, like those, a standard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those are the ones I remember going out and spending my own money to, yeah. to go and buy the albums, you know? That's interesting. I mean, did you ever picture yourself going off in, you know, you, you say you kind of wanted to focus on, on soul music when you started getting serious about music. Could you have pictured mm. yourself going off and making making rock music or making punk music instead only when i saw how much the rock musicians get paid <laughs> that's, that's a good honest answer i like that yeah man come on yeah i saw something with ozfest and how, many, how much people spend on on the rock music there as well and they have such a good time as well i mean some great yeah. some great bands out there as well you know the acdc stuff yeah, and yeah. that that kind of blows my mind you know what i mean uh led zeppelin um they they have a, have a great time but no my heart is is kind of stuck in soul even though i'm always experimenting you know that's kind of how i've managed to keep the fire burning because there's always something new to new to try out and and try and mix and mash you know yeah yeah who are you listening yeah. to now out of curiosity myself that's what i'm listening to <laughs> and uh, i won't listen to anybody else i uh, know joel <laughs> don't blame you uh, uh, joel, uh, there's a couple of new uh acts out there uh joel culpepper yeah i love he's joel. Kicking, kick, kicking up right now uh, and children of zeus yeah. As well as another, you know what I mean. These these, these kids, I mean, there's there's a, a wealth of talent out there right now, which is I, I'm really happy about that, you know, because uh, that means that music is in is in good hands. Yeah, yeah. And you you went from um, you know being a real fan of Stevie Wonder, you actually ended up working with him, didn't you? Yes, yes. I, I met Stevie like through the years since about 1984. Um, it's crazy. I managed to bump into him or go and see shows and then find people that know him. Uh, and then my manager, Keith Harris, at the time, uh, was uh, he, he's like Stevie's UK representative. So anytime he came to uh, London, then I got a chance to go and hang out with him. And he gave him my second album, which is when he said he loved the music and he wanted to write me my first number one. I was like, I, I really don't care where it goes. Let's, <laughs> let's just get in the studio. And um, uh, the first time we tried it was back in ninety three i think it was i'm in la and I've, I've been told right this is the day you say by that phone because he's gonna call all right okay and i waited all day all day and until midnight i finally get the phone call it's like yeah head down to wonderland um stevie's ready for it so i'm like excellent so i head down to wonderland two hours later i'm still waiting for stevie to come out and then he finally comes out and then we get into the room and then we start we sit down and start talking and he starts talking about the price of fish. And I'm like, what's he going on? What's happening? And then the next thing I hear, next thing I hear is, Oh, no. He fell, no. He fell asleep. He fell asleep. I'd waited all that time to do it. And then I was like, 
was like, no, you need to rest because he just basically falls asleep when he when when he you know, feels tired. So then I just had to wait, and it was like another eight years, seven eight years, and then I finally get a phone call, and it's like, yo man, it's your boy. I'm like, who's that? He goes, Steve. <laughs> I go, Steve, 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 and he goes, Stevie Wonder. I went, I went, nah, you take the piss. <laughs> uh, sing something for me, and he did, and it was just like, I went, oh my god, Stevie Wonder is it? But the next two weeks, um. I was like a, his ambassador. So he's in clubs, uh, at the hotel, restaurants, uh, and, uh, you know, everybody wants to meet Stevie, but they have to come through me mm. to meet him. Uh, you know what I mean? And then we ended up in the studio. Put, we put down one track, which is kind of all right. And then the next morning, I got another phone call saying, yeah, man, I got another song. And we went in, and that song is um, Feeling You, which is on my, oh my album, God. Sing If You Want It. Oh. You know? So, the, yeah, there's the story. His vocal on that is just mm. Fire! I mean, I've got a, yeah. I've got. I'm, you're probably not getting paid for this, Omar, but I've got a got a cheeky house bootleg <laughs> of that of you and you and Stevie. I think it's ah, uh, that's some, the Henrik some, Schwartz. That's it, Henrik Schwartz. Yeah, and that's the one. My yeah, God, yeah. when it gets to that final verse and Stevie kicks off, the club gets lit. It is uh, just yeah. oh, it makes my hair stand up thinking about it. Beautiful yeah, record. It was a blessing. Mm. Thank you. Thank Such you. a good story, too. That's a long time to wait, seven or eight years. Were you, were you still in <laughs> the is, studio? It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, man, when, we, and when it was time to go to the studio as well, he was like, yeah, I'll be there at 11. So I was like, okay. Went to get him at 11. He's still not ready. By the time we got there, it was five o'clock. And people have been <laughs> in the studio. We were like, Stevie's coming to the studio. Just wait. And then they were like, no, nah, he's not coming. He's not coming. And then it was only the hardcore like, you know, um, uh, people that were left that got to experience the magic of, of wonder, you know? You've come down through this uh, very musical background and your father obviously ran this uh, label which uh, put out a lot of reggae and stuff. And your third choice is a great reggae tune. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, this will be Dennis Brown and Silhouette. And I just simply picked it because it'd be a different thing, you know, to pick from the two soul ones. And mm. uh, I've been likened to sounding a bit like Dennis Brown too, which mm. I, I'm very happy with that because he's got yeah. that smooth, or, uh, you know, the almost crooner, jazz type vocals, um, which is so easy and so smooth to, to, to sing to. fact is he actually covered there's nothing like this as well yeah well when i say he covered he sings the chorus of it as well but you know to have the great uh dennis emmanuel brown singing one of my songs is uh absolutely yeah fire and you had some dreams come true with that and uh, stevie phoning you up at midnight you know this is this is (laughs) is what it's all about isn't it well it's about manifesting i've been trying to tell people you know when i was speaking at the fellowship thing I'm just like, you know, I, I remember when I was in the youth orchestra 
um, every every summer we would play at the Royal Festival Hall. And as a percussionist, you're at the back of the orchestra, or you know, mm. obviously for obvious reasons. But I always said to myself, from when I was 13, I said, you know what, one day I'm going to be, I'm going to be at the front of this, front of the the stage. And mm. I've actually headlined the Royal Festival Hall twice now. So if you wow. believe it, you will achieve it. You know, that's all I can say. Amazing. If you believe it and you work mm. bloody hard and also are talented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got, you got a voice to die for and you can write yeah, songs, then yeah. things need to come together. <laughs> might help, might help. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Because you're, you're back to playing live and stuff, right? And are you working on, on yeah. new music? It's gone crazy with all the live shows yeah. uh, back again. I'm actually going to be in the Ronnie Scott's on the 3rd and the 4th of December. And mm-hmm. um, I've just been working on the ninth album. Very, very happy with that right now. I've just been, uh, I was uh, working with Paul Weller. Uh, nice. We've done three songs t- together as well. I've been working at Black Barn. And he's been, he, he blessed me with letting me use the studio. And uh, uh, I've been talking to Q-Tip common and india re as well but then some stuff um but the album nine is coming along beautifully and i'm going to be going to record my strings which is a 20-piece orchestra um a couple of weeks so uh yeah the the diary is full everything is you know the time is full there's a lot there's a lot going on right now but i'm just so happy that it looks like we're out of that madness you know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah, for 20 good. months, you know, I, I used my passport for the first time in 20 months, like three weeks ago, we went to Czech Republic. It was like, I, I'd never seen this thing before. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and hadn't flown or anything like that as well. So give thanks that it looks like we're coming, we're coming out of the, the madness. Yeah. You know? And it's, I can't mm. wait to hear the results of those recording sessions Definitely. as well. Sounds Definitely. like you've got some amazing yeah. stuff coming up. Yeah. It's something me and Anne have talked a bit about uh, recently is just the uh, the mood in in music circles, certainly we, we kind of move in, has come back round to that sort of Brit funk and early acid jazz type sound. It's really, really come back into favour in the last few months. And there's there's some great new acts doing the same sort of thing. But what was it like to be um, involved in all that? Because that, that really blossomed wonderfully at the sort of end of the 80s, start of the 90s. Uh, just great, you know. Um, it's just great to know there was a, a bunch of people that felt the same as you did. Uh, you know, listening to Brand New Heavies uh, was amazing. Young Disciples. Incognito was always there, you know. Uh, Bluey. I, I, I only learned the other day that I actually used to get my drum lessons in the same rehearsal room as incognito in Hackney <laughs> as well. So there's a, there's a connection there as well. But that, it's that whole thing of people playing together. There's nothing like a, a, a band playing together. And i got to stress, it, it really does wind me up when they call, a, you know, one of those pop groups, a band. A band is when everybody plays together, yeah. not when they just front the thing. Not saying that you said that, but anyway, just get that pet peeve out of the way. Um, but I, I think it's, it goes back to, you know, with this whole COVID, nobody's been able to touch, nobody's been able to socialise mm. and everything like that. I think people are thinking, you know, effort, we need to, we need to like group together now and, and, and make some great, great music. And you can tell the difference mm. as well yeah. when people are, 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 are vibing together. Yeah, 100%. yeah. I feel people are ready for it at the moment. They really they want to they want to see that band. They want to they want to see people in the same room working together, and they want to be in the same room with those people. I think yeah. we've all missed yeah. it terribly, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
I'm determined to get a Brit Funk night going somewhere in London or maybe in Manchester with DJs and live bands. I want to yeah, get this, yeah. this Brit Funk revival back and happening. That's what I'm desperate for. Consider yourself booked. <laughs> yeah, thank you. If you're not busy <laughs> enough. <there>. Yeah, right. <laughs> squeeze yeah, yeah, him yeah, in I'll somewhere around. Yeah, we're going to make that happen. Um, but yeah, such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Omar. It's been a real, a real joy. Thank My you for pleasure. sharing your, your phonographic memories with us and can't wait to see you live and, and uh, yeah, hear the new album. enjoyed that fabulous chat with Omar we certainly enjoyed chatting to him and to Eamon Ford earlier on now listen if you like the cut of our jib and you don't mind listening to us bang on about music and meet nice celebrities and basically talk nerdy geeky stuff then do us a favor pay us back a little bit just by spreading the word maybe like us maybe subscribe to us maybe write us a lovely flowing tribute on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcast but you know Help spread the word because essentially you are our marketing tool and we want to use you. There's nothing like this.